Hey guys, I'm Jackie Brubaker, your host of That Girl, the podcast. I'm an author, performer, two-time Emmy Award winner, human relationship specialist, and founder of the wellness website, loveyouevenmore.com. Each week, I bring on inspiring people and experts in their field to have powerful, motivational, and enlightened conversations about relationships, self-development, and how you can live your most authentic life. Follow us for daily updates on myself and the podcast at That Girl the Podcast and at Jackie Brubaker on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and our Patreon page. While you're at it, make sure to check out my new wellness website, loveyouevenmore.com. If you're wanting to dig into developing more self-worth, be healthier about relationships, and learn how to date smarter, go to loveyouevenmore.com and follow us on Instagram at loveyouevenmore. Welcome, Cameron Richardson-Eames, to That Girl, the podcast. Cameron is a friend of mine. He's a accomplished singer, award-winning pianist and singer based in London and New York. He studied at Cambridge University, and he has been at, had a Fulbright Scholar at the Juilliard School, which is still, I'm like, wow, this kid. Um, you're not a kid, but you're just incredible. Um, and he did so much stuff as a young child, by the way, this kid kid man is a prodigy. (laughs) Um, He is a voice teacher to the best, the pros. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to music. And today we are going to talk about what does it actually take to be successful in music, whether as a singer or a musical theater person or classical, whatever. We are going to talk more about the psychology of how do you actually become successful at your craft? And then some fundamentals of like, how do you actually get to where you want to go? So Cameron, welcome to the podcast. Very much. Thank you. Yay. So we know each other because you are my voice teacher and we do lessons over in London and LA. We we have a nice, a Zoom thing, a Zoom relationship. Yes, we do. (laughs) Um, And I found Cameron just randomly too, but I, I do feel that it was fate because the work we've done together, be it brief, has been incredible. And I came into, I guess this would be a good reference. Like I came into this like fully trained, having done, you know, musical theater and jazz and all of that stuff for years, but then had taken quite a long break and hadn't studied with anyone in a really long time. And so I had developed just bad techniques and just, you know, kind of for those of you who sing, um, just you kind of start singing in unhealthy ways. And so Cameron's really been helpful in kind of undoing those and helping me understand more about my voice and my head and all of the things. Um, so let's talk about, let's start. Where where should we start when it comes to preparing to be a singer in general? What would you say? Listening. Let's 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 start with listening. Um, because if you, you need to have such an enormous range of references, um, and that really comes down to interpretive decisions, but even before that, in terms of your technique. So it's just like what you were just saying, then kind of set off trains of thought in my head about, um, as you said, you were fully trained, uh, when you came to me, which is great. I love, I love working with people at different stages for different reasons. 
Um, I like working with beginners because I don't have to fix anything. Uh, yes, that must be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Although sometimes you do. It depends how they've been speaking and how they've also, or, you know, anyone can have all sorts of problems, but it's, it's quite nice not to have to undo things that are deeply ingrained. Not that, and I didn't have to do that with you, really. You're an extremely kind of flexible learner. Um, but what you kind of made me think about was the, uh, the importance as singers of um, continued checking in um throughout one's career it's not something that you say i've completed this i've learned singing and mm-hmm. and now i'm like ready to be professional now i'm ready to take someone's money to sing to them like it just doesn't work like that in the same way it would work like that if you wanted to be an accountant or something it is uh very much an ongoing journey and a dis- journey of kind of discovery and evolution um, and that's something that I still get my head around a lot as well. It's like, well, n- now I sound like this and now all of my values are around this and doing that. Whereas five years ago, I used to do that. And yet I was still a singer. And um, uh, so I don't know whether that really is a very good kind of answer to where should we start. But that's kind of what was going through my head when you said, you know, um, you came fully trained. I just think everybody needs a kind of second pair of ears that are really trusted and um I've noticed a lot in the last year with my colleagues, with myself, with some of my students as well, who, because of circumstances, have been making music primarily on their own for the last year, um, mm. that, that that kind of checking in and that kind of peer review, all of that kind of stuff um, is actually incredibly important and really kind of keeps you on a straight and narrow and know where you stand within like the kind of wider singing community and know what your kind of criteria are by which you judge yourself and things like that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what was going through my head anyway. (laughs) I think to piggyback on that, um, especially, you know, let's, let's say that you are someone who has been singing for some time and because of the pandemic, like you said, like so many of us were like, well, I guess I'm going to start putting videos on YouTube and I'm going to start making music because I have to learn to do this now. And I have a whole background in music production from years, but it was the first time that I started doing like videos of covers. I just never wanted to do covers. It never even dawned on me to do that. And the more that I did it, and I think this is really where you're getting at, is that regardless if you're making videos for the first time or you're recording songs for the first time, you're spending so much more time with your voice, which is your instrument, and you're learning so much more about yourself because, you know, back, back, back in the day, like when we were growing up, it's like, oh, we're going to the studio and we're going to record. Like, that's not an everyday kind of situation. Like, that's a once in a while situation. And a lot of people who don't record a lot go into the studio or even their home studio and they're like, why don't I sound as good as I thought I did? Because a recording in a studio and singing on stage are very, very different things. Very different things. Um, I was just listening to a recording of a musical theater. Um, It's like an off-Broadway thing. And I was listening and I'm like, this is a perfect example of someone who does not go into the studio very much. But I bet sings their ass off on stage. But like, there's a very different thing. So you're hearing yourself a lot more, which goes into the listening, not only for other people, and constantly keeping your ears open to just be learning and like developing new techniques and new styles really. Right. But to actually listen to yourself and start honing that. Cause like, God, you're right. Like we only just strive to get better and better. And, and maybe that's not even like, Oh, we need to get better, but maybe it's like, 
like you, for instance, like you're classically trained and you're this beautiful tenor and you've wanted to go into more of a pop direction. And like, when we first talked about that, you're like, it's like, I didn't know my voice, you know, explain kind of more about that. So people understand what that means. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it, it, it's really essentially as different as playing the guitar from the piano. Like, um, maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but it's <laughs> like a kind of different channel that you're sending everything through and it becomes very kind of unnerving. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something incredibly kind of direct about pop singing, which makes you extremely vulnerable, which, and like within, within the classical sphere, you can hide behind certain things. Um, what do you, how, how so give it, make it real clear for people who are like, okay, so, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, so you hide behind technique in a little, in a way. So, um, <clears throat> okay. So for example, intonation, uh, tuning, um, if you're singing with a big orchestra, and you have plenty of like kind of operatic vibrato, you know, um, th- that kind of encompasses where you need your pitch to be. Um, that That's a very, very different way of kind of manipulating pitch than if you were going to sing a very, very straight tone, breathy thing straight into a mic. So I'm just going to close that. Um, so um, like, ah, like if I was going to go and do that rather than, ah, oh. So it's like there's very, very different ways of producing sound, ways of controlling sound. And as you said, like in the studio, um, one of the other things that you have to deal with is listening to yourself. And listening Mm -hmm. to yourself is um, brilliant and also really horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, this brings us on really nicely to what you were saying about psychology. Um, Because did you ever read the book, The Inner Game of Tennis? No. Oh, oh, okay. oh, please text that to me at the end of this. <laughs> I definitely will. By uh, Timothy Galway. It's one of my favorite books of all time. I'm not a massive reader, to be honest, but it is one of my favorite books of all time. And um, it's really about the mental dialogue that you have with yourself as a performer in sort of pretty much any discipline. Um, and the thing I like about it is he obviously uses tennis as a tennis player um, and um, the examples are tennis specific, but they really have repercussions all across like music, all across sport, acting. Um, and and it's sort of about how how you communicate with yourself and kind of building a trust with yourself. So if I'm going to talk about that specifically with singing, it's like, I know exactly what I want to convey or what I want to achieve or what I want something to sound like. And my brain instinctively, because of all the training knows how to do that. But the minute you kind of, kind of like put yourself into that process and get involved with it and start trying to control something that innately ought not to be controlled, um, you limit your ability to do it well. Mm. And it, it, it does explain itself very well in tennis. So, for example, he said he had a lot of people who would get to, uh, you know, the end of a tournament, had won all the way through, done incredibly well. And then it came to the shots where it was like, I, I'm either going to win or lose now. And suddenly they were hitting the net every time. Mm-hmm. And it's because something in the mental process changed um, when it was really important. Um, and and that is really very, very similar to what we go through as singers. And that is probably intensified when you become a recording artist and start hearing yourself because you have this kind of critical brain going on and one that's trying to look forward. And it's really hard to switch the critical brain off or not even switch it off, but keep it in a healthy place. 
And one thing that I find that a lot of my students do, I've done it myself, is that they start to become kind of retrospective as singers and they'll sing something and whilst they're singing it, they're, they're sort of analysing the last sounds that came out of their mouth. So not only are they not kind of committing to what's going to come next, so they don't really give their like 3000% of like uh, energy or emotion or whatever, but they're also like setting up hurdles for them to fall on the way. Um, and that really does have like literal physical ramifications. Like we tend to sort of hold in the muscles that just sit above the larynx, like those swallowing muscles, because we're trying to control something that in all the time we were practicing it, we didn't need to control it. We just like, just didn't need to. Um, yeah. And it came out perfectly, you know? That was a, the biggest problem that we first worked on, you and I. Like right. I would literally be psyched out for or up or whatever the saying is about certain notes that you're like, you can hit this and higher, you're fine. And I was like, but it's scary. And I would literally just freak out and not hit them. And I could only kind of maybe hit some of these bigger beltier notes, like in the car, you know, listening to someone else sing it. And I felt safer because there was another voice there. But like, I mean, come into like, you know, my own studio and start like recording. And it's like, that's terrifying. And that is so true. And I've been so guilty of that in shows where, you know, that note's coming or, you know, that part is coming. And you're just like only thinking about that when what you should be doing is a have a good voice teacher like you or, and (laughs) you should be just letting yourself fall into the song, right? Like Let your voice do what it already knows to do and trust it and trust your body literally to carry it. That's, that's absolutely true. The the trust is, I think the hardest thing as a singer I always had. So when I used to play at Juilliard, one of the teachers I used to play for had a saying that was essentially along the lines of um, singing is easy, but the discipline is hard. Mm -hmm. And and that is absolutely true. It it, it is probably the truest thing I've ever heard. It's like, um, Singing is one of those things where the more you try, the more kind of elusive it becomes because like trying involves tension and singing doesn't work if you have those tensions, you know, it, it, the, the, the machine will shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, trust is such a big thing. And you said like having a voice teacher is helpful, but it's really because of the repetition and having someone who's there, like just kind of keeping you on the straight and narrow so that your muscle memory becomes really cemented and you know exactly what to do. Right. Um, but it's it's a tricky thing, you know, and yeah. you're absolutely right. Like singing in the car, I hear that all the time. When I'm singing in the car, when I'm singing in the shower, I, I wish I could sing like I sang in the shower. And we have to kind of like look at, okay, so what were the circumstances that were different about that? It's usually either one of two things, the or three. The first one is it doesn't matter. The second one is that um, you're doing something that takes more brain activity than the singing. Mm-hmm. especially in the case of driving. I mean, showering is not, not that taxing for the brain. <laughs> and But showering has oral distraction in it because it's like the sound of water is louder than you singing normally, or it's right. it's something that kind of muddies the um, like the like how we experience it. And I found that when you have something like that that's kind of covering it, we're like, okay, so suddenly this isn't going to be like this perfectly clean take for a recording. It's me singing in the shower and it's going to have all this water in it anyway. So... So it doesn't matter. And then suddenly the voice is just so free. Um, mm-hmm. But but it's the same singer. And like trying to get you to that place when it's really pre- um, kind of pressured is what that book in A Game of Tennis is about. It's yeah. it's absolutely brilliant. And I was really fascinated by, do you, 
Did you watch um, the Grand? Is it the Grand Slam? I'm not really very good at tennis and the terms, but Emma Raducanu oh. won it. I had uh, it, yeah. New York. Okay, so when Emma, Emma Raducanu won it, it must have been like two months ago, something like that. She'd previously um, had trouble and had to drop out of a tournament in the UK. And um, for, for that kind of reason, something to do with mental pressure. I mean, they never really go into it in much detail. Right. But then in her interview after she won the Grand Slam, she was like, I just had this vision right from the beginning that I was going to win. And everything that I did in every match was kind of in service of that vision. And it just never really even occurred to me that that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, and that's really kind of what we have to get to as singers as well. It ought not to occur to us that that note might crack or we might get some tongue root tension there or this might be slightly nasal or all of those things. Mm-hmm. And instead, we just have to have intention. And that, that really is where the discipline comes in. It's about intention. I want to get into the discipline in two seconds, but yeah. just to finish that thought, it's like, again, when you just allow your body and your voice to be in that moment and enjoy what you're doing, because remember, this is supposed to be fun. You guys, like if you're a singer, <laughs> you love to sing, but it becomes yeah. a lot of work when you're not having fun doing it. You know, there's yeah. a lot of work. And again, we'll talk about the discipline, but like, if you can just allow, and also, you know, I was just recording before we got on here, so we'll talk about that later, but, um, you know, like I'm recording and I'm just, I've been recording my own voice for 10 plus years. So I'm very aware of what I sound like and what I need and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I've, I'm so happy because I've kind of gotten to this place now where I would rather get a great take that maybe isn't perfect, perfect, like, um, pitch wise, but has like more emotion and like dynamics to it that actually feel like someone's really talking about that, you know, where you're like in it with me. Like I would rather have a tiny, like a little tweak here, a little tweak there than have it be just perfect, perfect. And this is my own personal thing. Like whenever I watch musicals, especially we have so many like new musicals being made into movies or TV movies, I get so annoyed at the tuning that they do. It's just too, like, I'm just going to say it, but Les Mis, when that came out like years ago, the movie form, I was like, why? There's so much auto-tune happening. It was just, it was too much. Bugged me as a singer. I was like, just hire people who know how to do No offense to the people in Les Mis, but I felt that they went a little overboard on that because it's cool to like be in that emotional moment and let someone hear you not actually be perfect, but it is perfect for that moment which is yeah. also the song that I was recording before this, One Perfect Moment. <laughs> Paramchink. <laughs> Should we talk about that for a second? Yeah. Um, because I've, I think about this a lot as well, and I think it partly comes around because I spend so much of my professional time criticizing people. Uh, <laughs> which uh, are so nice about it too. <laughs> but, the, but the thing is, it's like I, I'm, li- I'm being paid to like hear what's wrong and to talk about it and to fix it. I'm not being paid to be moved by how beautifully you sang it. And so I, like my brain is ultra critical. And um, what, I, what I kind of struggle with as in terms of how I think, what I think about it, and I'm still not sure, so I'd like to know what you think about it, is whether this, um, like this perfection or this emotional but imperfect, whether that really is a false dichotomy mm-hmm. um, and, and whether it is possible to strive for perfection or something that's like beautifully crafted or is the emotion because it's wrong? 
is is the emotion because of the shortcomings in the technique and it's a sort of yes oh, and right no. yeah it is a you yes and I mean? no yeah and and I still don't know where I stand on that issue uh, and it really is a sort of case by case thing you know like if I go and listen to Adele for example there's a whole ton of stuff in there that is like objectively that's not healthy mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a reason why you've had vocal surgery um the, the voice is not designed to crack like that. It's not mm-hmm. designed to have the tension in it. But they sort of have their kind of own perfection in them because they're so in service of like the pain she's singing about. And it's like, I'm there. I, I know exactly what you're talking about and I'm really with you on it. So so is it an imperfection or is it like that like actually the things that are ostensibly on paper incorrect actually get moved into the perfect camp and... uh you know, and then does that boundary like get dissolved or is it still there? I really don't know the answer to that question. There may not be an actual answer. It might just be your preference, right? Because it's art, right? And art is subjective. So maybe it's just that simple, you know? Yeah. And there've been times where I've seen performances where I'm convinced that the reason I was moved by them was because they were so perfect. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Nothing makes me more excited than when I hear someone just sing the crap out of something, but it is a perfect, it's a perfectly sung song because I think especially as a singer, you're just like, wow, you really did that perfectly. And that makes me want to be better. And that makes me inspired. I feel inspired, but Yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful instrument, right? Like you're hearing it in that perfect, that perfection. Um, and I will say, I think, hmm, I think with classical, I would much rather hear it sung perfectly. (laughs) My cat's trying to jump (laughs) on the bed. (laughs) He's a big cat. (laughs) (laughs) He takes him a moment. Um, but I'd rather hear it sung perfectly classically than I would in musical theater or in pop or even in, especially in jazz too. Like those other categories, please let me hear your best Billy Hall or let me hear Billy Holiday be Billy Holiday, right? But please don't mm, here's another little tangent. Let Billy Holiday be Billy Holiday. Please don't pretend to be her. Do not copy her to be the and I that there was like a whole sort of, well, this is like a whole tangent into singing, but like I'm gonna go here. In pop, because that's where my world lives. Um, yeah. besides musical theater. In pop. There are so many copycats, and I know that you're not into this either, but it's so frustrating because it's a very stylized kind of situation, and there's different versions of it, but there's one in particular, a female voice that is copied over and over and over again. It kind of sounds like it's a diluted version of a Billie Holiday or an Ella Fitzgerald. And listen, as a jazz fanatic and who's someone who has sung jazz most of her life, I mean, I love that, but I'm not trying to sound like Billy. I'm not trying to sound like Ella. I'm trying to sound like me singing jazz. So what about that? What about, here, let me, let me get on, on topic. What if you're a singer and maybe you're younger and you're listening to these people and you're like, wow, I love the way they sound. And you're still kind of trying to find your voice. What do you suggest? Like what's, where, where should they go? Okay, so let's break that down a little bit. Um, 
the first thing is, okay, so what do we love about their voice? And it always boils down to the fact that it doesn't sound like somebody else's voice and it's unique to them. And therefore, you have to ask yourself the question, did those people then imitate someone in order to sound like them? And, and they're like, obviously, the answer would be no. Like, the reason we love them is because they sound like them. Therefore, it doesn't make sense for you to try and sound like them because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then you're taking away the reason we love them because you don't sound like you, <laughs> if that makes sense, yeah. any sense at all. Um, finding your voice is, is, it's tricky because, you know, I, I'm someone who's kind of lived in a whole bunch of different kind of outfits as a, uh, as a professional singer. Um, you know, I trained as an opera singer as... I think you maybe said, but I can't remember. Um, but before that, I was a choral scholar at Cambridge. So, like, my voice was uber trained to kind of blend. Uh, and that's kind of the opposite of being a soloist. Like, as a choral singer, what what really, if you think about it, you're hoping for is not to be noticed. Because the minute you're, mm-hmm. you're noticed, it means that you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of got to this point myself as well of, like, okay, so... So I can do that sound. Is that sound right? Or is that sound right? Because they're completely different and they're very different versions of Cameron. And what do I do with that? Mm-hmm. And to an extent, you do have to sort of pick a lane to go down. But I, I, re- I reached the conclusion with myself that I wasn't a singer. I wasn't a classical singer. I wasn't a pop singer. I wasn't a pianist. The only thing that you can be at the end of the day is you, right? That mm-hmm. sounds really cliche, but it's very true. It's like, the only thing I can say about me is I'm me. And then I can choose to kind of pour my kind of creativity into any of these kind of different channels or into any of these pots, you know, this is, you know, uh, and you take yourself with you in all of Mm -hmm. those places, um, whether it's going to be as a a choral singer, as a pop singer, or as a musical theatre singer. But the only thing that you really can be is you. And so... Like one of my philosophies as a teacher, if I think I'm getting kind of towards answering your question now, is that I try and find what what is like their true tone, true sound. You know, uh, often it's close to the speaking voice, but what that means for me is that there's nothing stopping it being that. So mm-hmm. rather than like kind of applying l- layers of makeup to it and making it sound butcher or you know heavier or darker or brighter or pinger, it's like what does your voice sound like when nothing is in the way, when when there's no kind of tongue tension, there's no kind of ob- obstruction of the pharynx or anything like that? What do you sound like at that point? And then we can talk about colour and then we can mm-hmm. then we can look at how we would style that to to work in this situation or in that situation. And uh, that that really is kind of the, the best way of doing it. So I always thought of voice teaching to answer your question about how people can find their own voice I always thought of voice teaching as sort of like peeling away rather than adding um Mm. and taking away things that don't work till you get to like sort of the core of that onion you know um everything that wasn't helpful um that you've learned since you were a child um kind of gets undone or gets released and then what you're left with at the end sort of like your essence and then you can um craft it and manipulate it however you like but um but it's more to do with like not doing rather than adding. Right. And sometimes, you know, I'm thinking of younger people too, um, you know, in your teens, 
even like 10, you know, like preteens and you're just, you're really starting to get into like whoever you're interested in two things, um, do it, copy them a little bit, just copy them. Cause you want to learn how to sing like that anyway. Right. You just want to like play, just play and then start like, and then once you get a little bit more like familiar with different genres and you can kind of copy them, like you could go do karaoke and sing like a pop rock song, or you could do a jazz song or whatever. And then I think that's when you're, you're ready to start peeling away things because you do know that you're copying someone. You're like, no, that's not actually me. That's just me pretending to be like somebody else. And now I can understand what that means by peeling it away and getting down to who I am. Um, I know with, with me, like what's been so fun recently is that, you know, my voice 20 years ago sounds so different than it does now. And it's really exciting. Like it's really fun to watch it change and develop into something totally different. And it's exciting to also peel away like old, like bad technique and all that, but also be like, what do I sound like at this stage now? And that's the other thing too. I think people kind of get wrapped up in like age and what you're supposed to be doing as a singer. Like when should you be successful or all of that. So let's kind of talk about that. I still kind of want to talk about discipline, but we'll get there in a second. We'll get there when we get there. But, (laughs) But like, you know, I mean, my mom is so funny. We just had this little, little argument this morning. She's like, you know, when you were younger, you were just so pitchy. And I was like, mom, that's not the right term. You're using the wrong term. I wasn't pitchy. I'm like, pitchy means that like, literally I had bad pitch. Like I wasn't actually singing the right notes. And she's like, oh no, no, you weren't doing that. You were just kind of like, I'm like, did I sound young? Did I sound tinny? Did I sound youthful? Like, just, did I sound like a mouse? Like, is that what you're trying to get at? And she's like, yes, like no offense, honey. But she's like, yes. I'm like, well, that's because I was 19, you know? I mean, of course I did. I was still literally developing. And, you know, most singers, I mean, I've heard this. I don't know if this is true. You let me know. A lot of them really kind of start coming into their own, like around 30 or older, that's that's absolutely true. Um, I, I, an example just came into my head when you were telling the story about your mum. So I have a lot of students who do like Netflix o- uh, voiceovers and Nickelodeon especially is quite tricky for this, um, where they're, they're kids shows and they've hired kids who are like 10, 11, 12 to record the voiceovers for cartoons. And invariably they want giant belts. That That's always what they want. And it's it, it it's kind of heartbreaking but also at the same time i know what they want so um so we do it for the session and then spend a lot of time kind of undoing it again or just kind of relaxing the larynx again mm-hmm. um and then when they've when they've done my work for a little while and i'll say that was terrific and they'll say like well that that wasn't as loud as or you know that that wasn't as big or th- that wasn't as bright and it's like I said, yeah, you, you sound like a 10 year old. It's like, well, I don't want to sound it's like, but how old are you? <laughs> it's, uh, like, I'm 10. Yeah. it's like, yeah. And so when I say you sound like a 10 year old, it's meant as like the most sincere compliment. You sound exactly how you ought to sound mm-hmm. for your age. And we have this problem as well, sometimes with the voice kids. Um, like I've had students who've done it and the voice kids give you choices of repertoire. And sometimes they've given 12 year olds, Jennifer Hudson songs. I'm like, this mm-hmm. is just insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, um, 
so so that is a tricky thing and it's also tricky because of the demands that the industry places on it you Mm -hmm. know um if you think about annie i mean annie has to belt up to an f sharp it's crazy um and those kids those kids are just too young to have a mix that can like sound like a belt so um it's it's really tough and like i have to be on call when when i have people who are doing annie i'm on like call all the time just to like warm them down after the show Mm. so that they go to bed like not still and really tired vocally um but but it it is tough and it's it's partly like you know kids wanting to sound older but sometimes if they're working professionally it's also what's expected of them right and that's oh you know i feel like um we really started to see that, you know, maybe like maybe when Annie started like on Broadway, you know, we really started to see more kids doing these, what should kind of be adult roles. And then it became like the prodigy, you know, opera singers at 10 years old and all of this, right. You know, all of this stuff. And, um, I went to, you know, middle school with quite a few, like, you know, famous people. Cause I live in LA and that's just how life is here. But yeah. one of them was, you know, one of those kind of like child opera singers and she was amazing. But I remember thinking like, why can't I sound like that yet? And I do remember having, my dad's also a trained singer and he was like, she is too young to be doing this. Like this is yeah. not healthy and she's going to burn out by 20. Like her voice will burn out. She'll get nodules, whatever. This yeah. isn't good. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, maybe as kind of like a PSA, it's just like, let your kids be kids. Let them sing at the level they're at, at the age they're at. Don't, you know, unless, I mean, I really, I know kids are growing up and are so much more mature, even physically now, younger than they've ever been, but still like they're still growing. Yeah. I think people don't tend to want to do the spade work as much anymore. What's that? Um, but like, you know learning to sing is sort of a very long apprenticeship mm-hmm. um uh, by spade work i mean like sitting in a room and just figuring it out and mm-hmm. not like wanting the results after two lessons um but if you're a 10 year old and you sound like a 35 year old like some people who don't understand anything about music like might be like that's really impressive but if i sat them down and said do you think a 10 year old like if a 10 year old spoke like a 35 year old you'd think that was weird right um yeah because like in order to for a 10 year old to sound like that as a singer like that involves a lot of false manipulation and that's exactly the opposite of what i was saying about peeling away that is adding that is like over darkening like this kind Mm -hmm. of stuff that is just so far away from where their voice ought to sound that actually when they do mature it's not just that they're tired it's that they actually just don't know how to sing because that's not singing um that that is not how the voice is supposed to work so so, you know, it's not just that they'll have nodes or whatever else, but, mm-hmm. but they'll probably have a whole identity crisis because everything that they thought they knew about singing turned out not not really to be true. Yeah. Gosh, that would be terrifying. So don't do that to your kids, people. Just if you're <laughs> listening, just please don't do that. Yeah, um, <laughs> okay, let's talk about discipline because okay. now it actually is kind of a perfect segue. Right. Um, so you and I both, you know, started really young, like we both just loved singing and were, you know, good at it, but we also, you know, you went to a performing arts school and just actually tell people what you did in brief, like, so they have a better idea of like what you, how you started with okay, discipline. Sure. So, um, I started pretty young, uh, uh, when I was three, I asked if I could have guitar lessons and it was always like me who asked this stuff. 
And um, I was taken to like the local music shop and they were like, this, this is way too young. This is insane. Um, but they were persuaded to let me play, uh, to take a lesson. And actually I responded really well to it. So I did take guitar for a little while. Um, but a lot of my childhood involved kind of trying different instruments till I found what really, really clicked with me, which was the piano. Um, and I started piano when I was six. Um, and then around about eight or nine probably started singing. And actually the reason I joined the school choir was because we used to get out of lessons to get, to get, to go and do stuff with the school choir. So it was like the cool thing to do. <laughs> um, uh, but I really loved it. And so I, I then started looking for kind of more ways to do it. I grew up in an incredibly rural, very, very remote part of England. I mean, England's not that big. It's hard to get properly remote, but, um, uh, but it really, by English standards, it was very remote. Um, so one thing that I've learned since then is that the, the type of teachers you have as a child really do inform the tracks that you take later. So the only teachers in my town were classical teachers. So it was like very natural for me as someone who liked singing to be kind of encouraged to join the church choir in the town, which I did. And then I joined the Yorkshire Youth Choir and then went to the National Youth Choir. But it was like, that was like the progression. That's what people did. It was never, ever heard of that someone at 10 would be like, I actually want to sing pop songs. Mm -hmm. uh, that was just, that just didn't happen. Um, and that's something that I regret and something that I try to kind of avoid with my own students. Um, so I did that and uh, was doing all of those choral things and then alongside doing my own piano playing. Um, now, in terms of discipline, I didn't have the most disciplined teacher as a pianist until I was quite a bit older. Um, and I had a teacher who, like, I really enjoyed my lessons. Um, but by the time I was 14, um, I was, like, technically quite behind, really. Mm. Um, and that's the other thing. Like, growing up around here, you don't really know what behind means until you go and watch a competition in London and you hear all the, the Russians and, you know, whatever <laughs> else. It's like, oh, wow, okay, so you can actually play like this in this age. Yeah. So... Um, so I applied for the Royal Academy of Music junior department, which happens on Saturdays. And I used to, I went down there every week. I used to leave my house at 4am, uh, train at 5.30. It's quite a long way to the train station as well. Get into London for nine and have my lessons there all day Saturday. Um, and then come back and get home about 11. Um, and I did that from about 14. Um, and really because... I specifically needed a teacher who was going to be a bit more dragon-like technically. Mm -hmm. So uh, so we did that. And that's where my discipline really came in was uh, in terms of like doing your hand and doing your scales and all of that. That that was really when I learned what proper discipline was. Um, yeah. You know, so I used to then in the week practice for about an hour and a half before school, after school for probably another two hours every day um, to, to just like catch up and um, – that, that's when I really started to see progress as a pianist works very differently as a singer. So, you know, I said about how these people were playing as 14 as singers. Like if you want your, if you want your child to sound like a 40 year old, then put them on the violin or the piano, but don't do it with singing. Mm. Um, but, but for piano, it's like, you know, it's, it's a very different thing. And the kind of competitive nature of that and violin especially means that if you're not playing like that by the time you're sort of 16, then you, your chances of ever having a career of, minute yeah. um but it's uh yeah it's it, it's kind of very much a different world in that respect 
Um, when you were studying voice, when you were going on Saturdays as well, right? Yes, that's right. So, yes. okay. So that started at 14. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's so, so actually what happened was at 14, I did, I went to the junior department of the Royal Northern College of Music, which was only about three hours away. And then at 16, I changed to the Royal Academy of Music. So, but okay. yeah, essentially the same thing. And for both places I did joint piano and joint first study piano and singing. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to like highlight this for people listening because Cameron was like a kid and he was like, I want to do this. I really, really want to do this. And I'm willing to put in the time and drive and spend my entire Saturday doing this at 14. And I want to, I want to say like, if you're, if you have a kid like this, or if you are like this, that's, I think that's a good sign. I think it's a really good sign because A, you love it. You really, and you really have to love it too. Like on a side note, if you are bored and you just like music and you're like, I want to be a YouTube singer. Like I want to be like, you know, famous overnight. Like this is not how this happens. (laughs) Like you don't just take a few voice lessons, like you said, and then suddenly you're like amazing, right? You're going to blow up on YouTube. It's not like that. It is years and years and years of study. And even if you are, you know, naturally gifted, that's great. But when you listen to like you did as a kid, you listen to like, oh, it could be here. It's the same thing at whatever age you're at. You've got to just keep that in mind. Like, that's wonderful that you're naturally gifted, or maybe you've had some training. Like, this is something I tell myself. I'm like, but I'm still working to be at these other levels of people that I look up to because you have to, and you have to really put in that work. And what that looks like is, and I'm sure it's different for everyone. Like for me, I'm just, you know, when I'm really in like focused, I'm training mode, like this whole year is just about training for me. It's like, I want to be listening to a bunch of different people. I want to be listening to a bunch of different shows. I just want to be immersed in it and just absorbing a lot of it so that it gets deep down and it's just like percolating, right? It's just kind of creating the mental aspect of it. And then on the other hand, the physical aspect, like actually taking voice with you, working on it all the time with myself, it's it's constant. It's not just a like, oh, let me like set aside one hour a day, which is great and a good first step, but it has to be like your everything and you have to really, really want it. Um, so let's say you are kind of at that spot. What happens then? Like maybe you're, you know, doing all of this, like, what are the next steps? Cause I feel like people are probably going to ask like, cool. And then what? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, uh, let's just create a scenario then. So I'm clear that we're on the same page. So we have a, someone who's about 16 who desperately wants to do this professionally. Is mm-hmm. that, is that what we're saying? Let's do it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, far and away, the most important thing is that you find the right teacher. Um, <clears throat> the difficult thing with singing is, there aren't very many of them, um, to be honest. And I tried probably like nine or 10 teachers before I got to about 22. And mm-hmm. was like, okay, these questions that I've been looking for answers to for the last, you know, sort of 12 years are mm-hmm. finally being answered, you know. Um, yeah. And the thing is, you can have the knowledge, but you also have to have the ears. Um, and, and those two things are equally important and, um, that's really hard to find. Very, very, very hard to find. Um, I can count those teachers on, on my fingers, definitely. Um, 
and then someone who's kind of sensitive about how it um, kind of manifests into different genres is quite useful too. Unless you're like, I'm only ever going to be an opera singer and that's what I want to do, then you don't have to worry about that so much. Um, that's the most important thing. You also said about you spent a lot of your year listening to stuff. Um, so I have this thing that I think of as, uh, I call it informed intuition, because I don't think intuition really exists in a kind of absolute sense. Yeah. Um, every choice that we make has been informed by something that we've heard or experienced. Oh my God, um, 100%. Yeah. And that's why right at the beginning you said you said something and I said the most important thing you can do is listen. And the mm -hmm. reason I said that was because if you listen, you have this giant bank of references to draw on. And most of the time you don't realize that you're drawing on them, but they kind of sit in the back of your mind. So like when I've been working with this uh, film composer, we've been working on um, the cover of Chasing Cars recently and we rescored it for Symphony Orchestra. Um, it's like, some of that stuff has come right out of the Anglican church, actually, that, that sits under it. You wouldn't think it because it's been completely repurposed. And it's not like I've gone in and said, I want this to sound like Leighton's maudlin service. It's more like it's just so part of my sort of DNA as a musician to kind of sit down at the piano and go through these harmonies that are bizarre and um, like that have meant so much to me. So listening, listening a lot is really, really really important um not just not just listening to like musical language but as as we talked about before elements of people's voices that we love mm -hmm. um because that can be a really great teacher for you you can say you know i really liked that um and i tried that with me and i don't think that worked but so imitation can be quite useful mm -hmm. uh, i don't want to say that people ought not to kind of do a little bit of emulating on their journey to kind of finding themselves that's not that's not what I would want to discourage at all, but um, mm. you have to kind of find yourself in the end. So there was listening. There's finding a good teacher. Um, one thing that's changed now that I didn't have was you can learn with really good people from home. Um, and that didn't exist even like three years ago, really, because yeah. like the advent of that really was COVID. And that's been a great thing, actually. Um, I think it's uh, like a lot of my students... Um, I mean, my school has like almost 500 students at this point um, have tried a lot of their local teachers, whether that's in like Singapore or Hong Kong, whatever. And they're like, I could, I can take a turn with them. And yes, it's nice because we're in the same room and it's kind of jovial and everything else. But, you know, if, if I want like distilled information, uh, then I'll do it online. And I, that, that will take, that will be more useful than a term with, with a local person. So um, there's a lot more kind of available. Um, yeah. And it's kind of weird because I've seen this kind of inverse relationship in my, like as a teacher and as a, a coach when I was at Juilliard pre-college um, that the more stuff is available, the less people go and use it. Um, and mm. that's a real shame because I remember when I was a kid and a, a CD was coming out, I would go and queue outside HMV, you know, which was like, you know, our, our record store in, in the town and wait for it and get your physical copy of it and read all the notes and, you know, look at the pictures of the session and mm -hmm. listen to everything in order as this like one giant work of art and like live it and have it in the car and have it on your Walkman and mm -hmm. download it onto the computer. And now it's like everything is just there that people people 
don't go for it. It's kind of weird. Um, yeah. You know, if someone's learning a Schubert song, it doesn't really occur to people to like go and listen to every like every recording that they can find on Spotify, like Ian Bostrich or whoever it's going to be, see what they do with it. It's like it it just doesn't seem obvious, and I don't really know why that is, unless mm. we kind of have been taught to sort of be a bit complacent and a bit lazy with that kind of stuff. But I think when you had to work for it and go and find those CDs in the library or whatever, which mm. I did. Um, there's something like a whole lot more satisfying <laughs> about it probably. Yeah. I mean, I was the same way. Like I just wanted to get my hands on everything and I still do, but I think um, that is partly just kind of society these days. But if you are working at a craft and it really doesn't matter. I mean, we're just talking about singing today, but I, I think like that book you mentioned, this just applies yeah. to a craft, no matter what it is, you just want to learn everything you can about it. And it does go into the subconscious and then it comes out. There's actually a song that I wrote and I did not realize I was completely ripping off like like another artist song because I was so in love with it. <laughs> and I thought I had enough distance, but I didn't. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's always there. And it's really just about, you know, utilizing it. I think like, I think the biggest takeaway here is from this entire conversation is really just getting the knowledge, spending the time, really working on your craft, working on your voice, working on everything, listening to music. But at the end of the day, when you are feeling like, yeah, I think I am ready to do this, really start peeling back all of those like vocal crutches and vocal copying and all of that stuff and really be like, who am I? What does my voice actually sound like? Um, I know, you know, for me, it's like when I'm learning a new song, I'll listen to the person who sang it because I'm learning it. And it's so easy to copy that, but it's so cool to make it your own. And once I think you get to that stage of making it your own, you can trust yourself even more because you're actually genuinely singing that song for you and not just copying it because it yes. sounded great the other way. You can make it your own and someone will love that. And at the end of the day, you just need to really find out who you are and what you sound like and have the faith that that is enough because I think so many people are so terrified to sound the way that they sound. But like you said, it's so true. We love Adele because Adele is Adele. You know, we love other people for their voices because they're totally unique. So definitely peel back the layers, like you said, and just keep searching for your sounds. That's absolutely true. And on that note, uh, I just want to do a quick plug for music theory, which seems to be like sort of the, the sound that doesn't get noticed anymore. Um, because, uh, you know, I might be a bit of an odd stick in the mud with it, but I like to learn things from, from the blueprints rather than from someone's interpretation of the blueprints. Mm. Um, uh, because not only do you end up not in, uh, imitating people, but you have such a much deeper understanding of what was intended um, mm. and find a lot more stuff out. So, you know, uh, that that goes for pop, for musical theatre, uh, for everything, really. If you know, for example, what your piano is doing and what your harmony is doing and how that's supposed to kind of underscore what you're saying, um, it gives you like this whole kind of new matrix of possibilities for, for what you can do with it. Um, and that makes it so much more fun. And actually, if you then decide that you're going to do production or your own songwriting, it stops you being boring. 
<laughs> because yeah. you can buy like it, it, it just makes me die inside uh, you can buy midi packs of like 300 great chord progressions and drag and drop them into you know studio one or into logic or whatever and it's like that's not what music is Mm-hmm. that that's doing a jigsaw or you know <laughs> you know in in other yeah. words it, it would be called painting by numbers that's that's yeah. not that's not music you have to know what's going on um yeah. uh, otherwise it, it sort of becomes totally meaningless you know right and the like, fastest way really yeah it's yeah. really not authentic or genuine or real it's again it's just like you said painting by numbers just with apple loops basically um, and the other thing too, with, you know, learning a song without listening to someone else sing it and just working with your teacher and listening to the vocal line, you know, just on the piano, you're going to find out what you sound like immediately. That's going to yeah. be your real voice. That's not going to be you copying someone else, trying to sound like someone else. You're going to hear yourself immediately and it might be a little scary, but that's a good thing. I think. Do you think it is more scary? I think so. I think, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been singing. I think sometimes it, it can be like a, oh, I'm, cause I think about this too, when you're like workshopping a show, like a musical theater show, you're getting that song for the first time. You're the one who gets to originate it. You get to make that song literally your own. And so if you can do that with songs you've never heard before that other people have sung, but you don't hear that, it's a great way to be like, well, how would I really sing this song? So it can be a little scary. Yeah, but but liberating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. See, I think I think personally, I would find it more scary if I was comparing myself to the person who'd become famous singing it. Um, I would probably find that slightly more daunting. Yeah. Um, because, because you're never going to sound like that person, <laughs> um, right? Unless you're like the world's greatest tribute act, but. Um, <laughs> But I, I, don't, I don't know. I think um, I think sort of your judgments would be, yeah, as you said, like a lot better if it was like kind of coming straight from. I like to use the word blueprint. I don't know why, rather than like the sheet music. Um, yeah. But it, it, it's it's what was intended. That's where all the answers are. The answers aren't in the recording. The recording is what someone made of it, mm-hmm. um, and it's not the same thing. Right. Yeah. I love this conversation. I know we kind of nerded out today, but. I know there are other music (laughs) nerds who are going to appreciate this. And also just people who are like, you know, I've always wanted to sing or my kid is a great singer. You know, this is two singers who are like, we've been doing this for a long time. And it's just like, this is what it really is. You know, this is like a very inside look of like two singers talking voice. Um, You have a vocal coaching company and Please tell people about this so they can find you and other teachers in your company. I do. Yes. Thank you. So um, it was set up really to address some of the things that we were talking about earlier. So it was, it was really designed so that people who did live a long way outside of LA or London or, you know, um, New York could have access to those people. And really for people who did want to be professionals to be working at high level from from sort of younger so i hired for example the people who coach for the voice in the uk um and this is like the only place where they can be hired unless you go on the show um uh, to to come and teach for us and it's all in uh, no it's probably about 99.5 percent online 
we do some some live lessons in London and New York. Um, but it, it's it's primarily designed to be online for people who for them to have access to to really the top teachers there are. And it's called thevocalcoaches.com. Coaches is plural, thevocalcoaches.com. Uh, we have we have 19 voice teachers at the moment. That's amazing. Um, we have people who have been in the West End. So I, I'm hiring new teachers every week because we have so many students. This week I had a fantastic teacher who was uh, in Wicked. She was in Phantom <sighs> of the Opera and she was in Les Mis. Oh, the it's like the trifecta. <laughs> and uh, she decided she wanted to start a family and went into teaching and she teaches at Tring Park School, which is like a big performing arts school in the UK. And if you don't go to Tring Park School, you can now learn with her online from wherever you like in the world. Um, What's her name? Uh, her name is Katie Hannah. Okay. Um, so uh, um, in all sorts of disciplines, we have people like that too. We have voice teachers who, who are at Juilliard who are like the kind of opera people, all, all sorts of things like that. So it, it's like, it's kind of a one-stop shop for, for people who want to be pro singers. And then we also, I was really kind of keen on this right from the outset, for people who need it, have uh, music theory, ear training and piano um, because I think they're important. Um, mm-hmm. We also do a little bit of mentoring and songwriting um, for people who are sort of working professionally as songwriters. And I've hooked people up to like the the house writers for Sony and EMI. And um, we have them as sort of consultants. And we also have a top New York talent agent, uh, like Broadway agent, um, who you can have consultations with. She's on our faculty too. Um, so it, it really is there to sort of give answers to people who found answers to things you know that's whether that's technically kind of career-wise or artistically really it's it's all there it's yeah it's amazing well I'm so happy that I found you Me and too. we've also just become friends so <laughs> it's just been awesome well every if you guys need to get a hold of Cameron or any of his teachers you just want to look up all the things about him everything's in the show notes Cameron thank you so much this was awesome It was an absolute pleasure. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Remember, sharing is caring. Make sure to rate the podcast and leave a review. We really rely on this to help get the podcast out there. Also, make sure to watch the video version on YouTube at That Girl the Podcast.